This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, people of Melbourne, and welcome to this week's episode of Radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and do we have a show for you? Now, on today's show, you're going to hear about combining a career in medicine with law, you're going to hear about some novel approaches to limit the damaging effects of gambling and the latest in thinking about how to change our policies around illicit drug use. Our special guest on today's show is Dr Melanie Tan. Melanie is a half-doctor, half-lawyer. She's like a professional centaur. Is that one of those horse-human people? You know, half-human, half-animal. And, of course, we're going to try and figure out today which part of her is the animal part, the doctor-lawyer, and which part is the human part. We'll find out very soon. She's going to tell us about her career and what led her to such a curious mixture. Also, our panel is half lawyer, half doctor. First up is the smartest medical student in Melbourne, if not Australia. Oh, she's coughed and spluttered and almost fallen off her chair. Dr Trainer Wills is fresh from medical student exams, so her knowledge should be impeccable. In fact, I'm tempted just to throw a few random questions at her and the rest of us can score her. You know, A, B, C, D, E, maybe fail her. So she has to come back and answer that question again next year. So we will see how we go. And finally, but of course... But, of course, without any diminishing aspects to being finally at all, is Dr... Well, honorary doctor, Lex Judicata, one of Australia's leading legal spokespersons. How is that for a pop-up? He knows more about the law than I know about lying on the couch and watching TV. And trust me, that's a lot. Finally, we've got Kent on the buttons with occasional special comments. Kent, I'm going to throw the mic to you today and you're going to have to have special comments. So everyone sit back and relax because it's radiotherapy time. Just listen to this. up everyone get ready for a bit of information let's say hello to the panel trainer wheels how are you i'm a bit crook but i'm on holiday so I'm what are you happy. um what are you crook with chest infection yeah. yeah coughing out there i heard some coughing yeah. did you notice when you walked in and i said hi how are you and you said i've got a bit of a chest infection i just took like an automatic step back yes yes i did notice that. <laughs> i'm so bad at well it trained. I, I try and cover it up but it's just like a, a knee-jerk reaction for me lexi well i'm a bit crook too but um medically not professionally Medically, not professionally. Mm. What's, um, what's your crookness? Is yours a chest infection too? Uh, too much watching Wagner, I think. I think you can, you know, there's so much Wagner you can watch and then it becomes um, medically dangerous. Can you, because you know I'm a working class boy, what's, what's Wagner again? Well, at least you got the pronunciation correct. I know, which is I, actually, I actually was going well, to pronounce it correctly. Yeah, I was going to, and then I you stumbled on the last minute. Up, did you? Well, I couldn't remember which was correct, and I, oh. and I obviously accidentally got mm. the correct Took one. Took a punt. Well, yeah. I did the 5 o'clock to 11 o'clock show on Friday night. 5 to 11, so 6 five hours. 5 to 11, yeah, but you do have a you know, few minutes. For Doesn't the drummer get tired in the band? <laughs> What, how, there's no band and there's no drum. Well, there's a big drummer. Because I go, I go, drum, to, drummer. I go to festivals sometimes, like the Byron Blues Festival. Mm. That's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, there, there were 113 in the band. Right, that's how, wild, how many it? in the audience? Ten. Packed. <laughs> that's packed. what. That's what probably is, the definition the, of orchestra should be, where there's more musicians than people <laughs> listening. There was a sort of demographic though in the audience. Yeah, or, or close to dead. <laughs> <laughs> What's the demographic? Well, it was. Yeah, you, you had to w- watch your manners and be well-dressed. Let's just put it that way. Actually, look, I, I actually went to the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra for the first time ever about a month Did ago. Did you like the drummer there? Well, I, there was actually a guy up the back playing drums. He didn't have proper sticks. They had, like, big 
like yeah. cushiony things on yeah. the end of his drumsticks. Like schnitzels. But I went to, you know, because it was a movie thing. They were playing the um, soundtrack to Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was actually, it was actually, so, you know, no, it was sort of. that night at all. Well, it was sort of a crossover for people like me who aren't into that sort of bizzo. And I thought it was a pretty good night. I thought they were okay. The, the musicians looked a little bit mm. stiff and, you know, they, they didn't look like they were having a good time. None of them danced, none of them smoked, <laughs> none of them were drinking. But nevertheless, they looked like, they looked okay. I was all right. Mm. I was moderately impressed. Mm. Hey, Melanie, Dr. Melanie Tan, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. Hey, we've dragged you in here on a day when you're most supposed to be flying away and you had to delay your flight. So hats off for delaying your flight and coming and talking to us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. We're going to get you, you in a minute. No, um, yeah, Melanie, if I, yeah, if I need a will done, can I come to the emergency department at your hospital and you'll draft it for me? Uh, yeah. That's a good idea. Well, I have no experience in wills or probate, I'm afraid. Um, I could it could possibly... be handy at an ED to be, do a quick will. Because oh, you I... get a few desperates. And... <laughs> yeah, and you could, whip it out. And you could double dip. You, uh... you could get the, you could get the um, private billing if they've got private yep. insurance. Yep, Medicare. You get the, you get the Medicare. And, and the inheritance. You get the legal fee. Oh, what about the inheritance? What about writing a bill where you can say, it's like the lawyers who do, you know, only pay if you win. You can say, listen, you only have to pay if you, you don't make it. You can pick up the executor. True, um, Let's just say, uh, three words come to mind, Bill, right now. Conflict of interest. <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. We're getting all legal already. A little tingle my went down my little goodness. spine. <laughs> Why don't we get down to business, seeing that's what we're here for. Now, we thought we'd kick off the show with a little bit of a chat about Australia's obsession with gambling, triggered by an article in the New York Times saying that Australia had a big problem with gambling and raising some novel approaches to addressing it. Lexi? I'm I'm hoping Donald Trump reads the New York Times and actually get stuck into Australia's gambling problem because he's a can-do guy. <laughs> oh, my uh, You know, I reckon we can have... I think you're in the wrong some... demographic. For... Well, this is nothing, triple R. Did you, did nothing you know? will stop Don. Nothing <laughs> will stop him. You know, if there's a way to solve a problem, Don will find a way. Let's but see. I just thought it was interesting to know the statistics on Australian gambling. And yep. Maybe we, um, it's something that goes under the radar, but last year we lost 24... Lost... Not spent, lost twenty four point three billion dollars in gambling in Australia, and that represents thirteen hundred dollars per Australian that went down the chute on gambling. So that's the first issue. Uh, if you if you ran a lottery and hoped to get twenty four point three billion, you wouldn't believe you could do it. So let's let's have a lottery. I wonder where that. I, I, so you know, community radio, you know, we'll a, all put in and we'll raise twenty four point three billion. And that's what it raises. That's what they lose. What is our annual? I, I don't. I looked this up once, but not for years. Our annual tax revenue. I wonder what percentage of our tax revenue gambling is. Well, well, I'll come to that. Half of it was on video machines, which is the, one of the issues I want to talk about, uh, uh, because they're regarded as the crack cocaine of gambling. Is that it's pokies? also quick. Is that pokies? Pokies. Yeah. Okay. Pokies. Yeah. Uh, because you, you lose it so quickly. I mean, at least with the races, you've got to wait thirty minutes between each race. But in with pokies, you wait about five seconds between each go. So, mm. major problems with uh, video machines. Um, and it's estimated that um, six hundred thousand people in Australia use a, ga- a gambling machine every week. So, uh, and sixty percent of losses are due to those machines. And, of course, we all know that um, most of these gambling venues are not in um, wealthy locations. They're in locations where there are battlers and people who really can't afford to lose this sort of money. Um, In New South Wales, um, New South Wales has more gambling machines than anywhere in the world except Nevada. Really? And and New South Wales, they rack up $6 billion 
annually in losses. So people in New South Wales lose $6 billion, um, And then you go to the other side of the equation, the other people who are addicted to gambling are governments. And last year, taxes on gambling brought $5 billion to state governments. Now, there were 20, uh, $24 billion lost. Interesting, isn't it? $24 billion lost, only $5 billion goes to the government. So anyway, $5 billion into their state coffers. Actually, I, I'm, I'm... Well, because uh, the machines, yeah. operators get it. No, but normally the government gets the lion's share of gambling well, um, money. I thought <clears throat> I'm either wrong or we've got our... We'll, we might double-check that. Anyway, $5 billion goes to the government. And, of course, what's the incentive to regulate or Does close any, this down? None goes none. to federal government? No, it goes to the state governments. all governments. States. Yep. Isn't that Nick Xenophon's whole thing? Wasn't his, his whole thing going into politics was to get rid of pokies. It was. Yeah? It was, among a few other things, but yes. It's it interesting, too, that so much is in New South Wales, because New South Wales mm. historically was the place everyone went. I, when yep. I grew up, you know, my parents and their friends would, every once in a while, you know, two or three times a year, they'd go on a weekend up to the border. They'd drive up to the border and they'd have a weekend at Albury, Wodonga or one of those places to play the pokies, because there were none in um, Victoria back oh. then. And so it was a standard holiday, and all those towns along the... Um, along the Murray River. Twin had, towns. Yeah, They're the twin towns. Twin towns. Um, had, uh, you know, a, a <clears throat> bustling tourist industry wow. from people from Melbourne heading up for the weekend to play the pokies. Mm. And they'd go up and they'd have a ball. They'd go up and, you know, they'd party, they'd go out, they'd dance and they'd play the pokies during the day and, have you know, get drunk at night. And they used to rave. And, uh, yeah, it was part of my growing and up. Anyone could, could walk into an RSL in, in Corowa or... Yeah. or Wherever and, and the remember. other thing you noticed back then in the good old days was when you went on a trip up to New South Wales, all those local clubs were so wealthy. So you'd go to all those leagues, clubs and RSLs and stuff and they'd just be beautiful compared to the Melbourne ones mm. because, of course, they were thriving off mm. the gambling profits. Is that why there's that actually a place called Casino in New, New South Wales? That's a good oh, question, but no. I don't, I don't know. Where is Casino? I've it's been somewhere through in it. The rural New, no, I know I've driven through it. I can't remember. Armadale, isn't it? Is it? On New England, isn't it? Casino? They should chuck one there. Mm. <laughs> well, anyway, getting back to the governments, because this is the issue, um, you would think if there was a social problem like this, such as um, we'll talk about drugs later in this program, uh, the governments would take some, some action about it, like they do with smoking. Mm. That there would be some attempt to curb the social problem. But when the government's a beneficiary, there's no political will to do it. So there's been an un- unhealthy alliance between governments and gambling companies and casinos to keep this... Uh, dirty business going. Um, for example, they won't even introduce limiting your bets. If if they limited how much you could put into a machine uh, in a, in an hour, you could cut the cut the gambling losses by half. But not even an attempt to limit the amount you can put in. So what's happened is the law has stepped in, and this is why really I wanted to raise it today. Um, if you can't get the government to fix it, maybe the courts will fix it. And Morris Blackburn, an um, Australian social justice firm, in October launched proceedings against um, a casino and a, and a machine manufacturer uh, on the basis that they were misleading the public on the odds they were giving to win on these machines. In other words, uh, misleading and deceptive conduct, an allegation of misleading and deceptive conduct against consumers by the um, casinos and by the makers of the machines by rigging the machines in a way that doesn't disclose how little chance you have of winning. So if they can get that up, um, we might in fact have a court-led reform of gambling in this country uh, where there's been a complete abject failure by the politicians to do anything about it. Do you reckon it is a... I mean, I know you and I have discussed this many times over the years and 
at the risk of repeating ourselves, you know, the, we try and regulate these issues, you know, through a combination of education, regulation and taxing normally. Um, you know, we tax pretty heavily gambling. Obviously, you've raised that and we made a bit of, we've made a Don't tax bit the of, users. No, that's, well, we do essentially, but they don't... Not they, like cigarette smokers. No, they, well, they don't see it is the problem. They don't realise that every dollar they put in... 15 odd cents is being taken out in tax but or whatever it is 10 cents mm. um it's somewhere in that ballpark um and the education we've sort of got going but education is relatively new i think part of the problem with gambling there's two problems to it one is that it's state-based as you say and so it's hard to get national regulations and um i think the second problem is that people don't really see the problem side of gambling that we see in the hospitals and that we know from research so what about the courts well the, see the reality is i think the figure is about five percent of gambling gamble in a, in a problematic way and when they do gamble in a problematic way it's dramatic it affects obviously the person self-esteem depression obviously all the financial problems often their employer alcohol problems. they're stealing from yeah it often affects their employers it always affects their family um of, you know i've seen patients over the years who um, have been thrown out of the house with two days notice because the sheriff's turned up and no one's realized that mum or dad or someone had a gambling problem and the house is no longer theirs um it's just drastic but i don't think we, people don't see it like they see the problems of drug addiction like they see no, the problems of alcoholism the street. no they don't see it and so it's one of those hidden problems because five percent is obviously a lot but it's one of those hidden epidemics and as a consequence i don't think there's the pu- the public's attitude is and sometimes and i sort of have some sympathy for this attitude 95 percent of people are doing it quite safely and just enjoying it as a recreation why should they be limited because of the five percent that's isn't the that issue same with smoking it is absolutely bill it's but, one but of all those drugs but, i guess lex i mean all drugs the same thing right it's only a minority yeah. that actually have a problem yeah most recreational True. drugs you could say the same for heroin you could say the same for ice there's a proportion of a problem there, and so no you weigh ju- up the pros and cons there's no justification for doing nothing about gambling no justification it's just gutless politics. i don't think we're doing nothing but i'm with you bill there's uh, no justification we're just putting up a few signs putting a couple of ads on I mean, no what, i agree with you. if you're earning yeah, yeah, yeah. five billion in taxes you could afford to do a bit more than that i'm with you i agree with you. you're not going to get an argument so, on that. so the, it's interesting because um the courts might in fact bring about legal change and social change you know where they're, they're often derided as being you know fuddy-duddies and not up with the times well hopefully with if activists get behind this case we might actually get some change out and of, it could be in the next six months out of interest lex how do you think we can um sort of get gambling under control with you know certainly with pokies it's one thing but when the spring carnival horse racing is such a big cultural uh you know thing in melbourne how can we yeah well and on tv all the time and, even yeah. during the grand final you know you've got bookmakers coming on every few minutes right. to give you the odds um, i think that's different I, I mean that is gambling sure but it and and now with sports betting on your mobile phone you can basically bet on horse racing almost all day somewhere in australia uh, so that can be a big problem too um but the, the real evil is this 50% of losses going down the chute on video gambling. And if video gambling was, was tackled, you would have a huge change in people's lives. I mean, I acted for a pro bono for a person who I worked with once, and she found all these um, CityLink fines in the cupboard and then found um, speeding fines from all over the place and parking fines. The husband had been parking outside the, the video, uh, the poker machine venues, just double parking in the street. And of course, not caring because he's totally addicted. And they were they were racking up. I think it was eighty CityLink fines and about one hundred and twenty parking fines that, of course, have been buried, covered up. And so, at this point, as you were saying, the sheriff was about to turn up. So we went off to court, and the court actually waived them all because 
the first she found out about them was when she found them in the wardrobe because he'd never disclosed he was a gambler. This is a sort of social... It's uh, massive. I- ...evil that this thing is causing. And, and pokies is by far and the And pokies is the major cause. Hey, um, thanks for bringing that along, Lex. An important issue. Oh, we should talk about gamblers' help too. If, oh, yeah, let's give it a quick plug. If there are people out there who have gambling problems and they need any support or help, there's a number of places you can go to. The, probably the first touch place is Gamblers' Help. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week service. You can look it up on the internet or you can ring on 1-800-858-858. There's also a youth line for Gamblers' Help, a Gamblers' Help youth line. Um, this is within Australia only, 1-800-262-376, or again, you can search it on the internet. And, of course, you go to, if you've got any problems with um, uh, any difficulties with life, is always Lifeline, which is 131114. Three. Triple. And I gather you're back on Triple R and I'm trying to multitask and answer the phone and do it at the same time. You're the wrong um, gender. You're the wrong gender. <laughs> well, Sorry. I'm the wrong everything. I mean, even if I was the right gender, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. Um, I hope I've done that right. You have on the uh, panel this morning a team of geniuses, with the exception of myself, um, do- Dr Lex Judicata, our famous lawyer. Doctor? I give you an honorary doctor. I think you deserve it. Associate professor would do me. Okay, we'll go straight for professor. Mm. Um, Young Dr Trainer Wheels and our special guest, who is Melanie Tan. Now, I have a little intro here. I'm so disorganised. Melanie lives a dual life as a doctor and lawyer. She's worked mainly in Victorian public hospitals throughout the years and has also been a lawyer and claims manager in medical negligence. And we wanted to drag Melanie in here this morning because I reckon I've heard a couple of people over the last few years who have done this. And we wanted to just explore how you can have two careers. So once again, Melanie, even though we've welcomed you, official pre-interview welcome, welcome. Thank you. And it is great of you to come in. So tell us the, just tell us the nuts and bolts to begin with. How do you do both law and medicine? Well, first you do a medical degree and then you do a law degree. Can you do it? Is there any particular order? Do others do it the other way around? Yeah, there are others who do it uh, the other way around. And quite interestingly, um, having worked um, as an ED locum, you know, in Victoria and also New South Wales and ACT, I have actually, um, over the last couple of years, come across... Um, uh, lots of people, in fact, who have come to medicine from different professions, including a lawyer. Um, for me, I did medicine first and uh, d- did my internship at the Alfred Hospital, and then after that, I went off and did law after that. So, so how many years of study? Oh, my God. Well, the medical... Know. That was <laughs> an oh, my God, from Tradewheels, who was a medical student. Uh, who the hell's, who the hell's paying the fee help at the end of the day? <laughs> yeah. So how many years of Hex study? Hex is all paid off. Um, the, well, the medical degree was six years. Um, my law degree was actually two years because I did it in Cambridge. And in Cambridge in, in the UK... If you already have a degree, uh, they cut one off, one year off the basic degree. So in, in the UK, a uh, uh, law degree is three years. So I, I did, uh, completed it in two years over there. So As all you up. Do. <laughs> yeah, it was quite intense, but it was, uh, it was a, an amazing experience. So all up eight years of university study, but, um, in the UK, after you finish your law degree, you'll have to do another year of study, depending on whether you want to be a solicitor or a barrister. So I did a solicitor's course. In Is that like our equivalent to articles, or what's the equivalent um, these days? Is some the, course they do now. The, it used to be Leo Cousins. What is it these the days? The equivalent would be something like Leo Cousins in the UK. College of Law. Equivalent is College of Law. Yeah. These days, yeah. So, yeah, College of Law, right. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Lex would know much better than I. I actually didn't qualify in um, in Australia. I sort of requalified when I came back. Um, now I've lost my train of thought. Um, so. So, so, tell me, what are the benefits of doing both? 
Well, <laughs> obviously, obviously not many. Oh, well, you can so. sort of tell. You get a degree in indecision. It's got a bachelor well. of indecision. <laughs> That's one of the things you don't get bored. I think bored. That, that gap, that pause, summarises it. <laughs> I have been known to be a little bit indecisive. I think sometimes, um, maybe, but um, yeah, no. Essentially, um, for me, I, I get the best of both worlds. I never get bored. Every week is different. I'm just the sort of person who. I think I'm. I think I'm a little bit ADD. To See, be the odd bit about you, <laughs> the odd bit about you, and I, and I mean this in a nice way, is that you still practice both. There are other people I know who've done law and medicine. I know a few people who've done medicine and then jumped to law, and vice versa. But they normally just practice one. You're practicing both. Yeah, I've come across one other person so far who pra- who practices both. But yeah, to be honest, it's taken me a while to get to the place where I am in a position to practice both. Um, I think for the last, you know, 10 years or so, I've been thinking, you know, I, I need to commit to one and just choose one. And um, I just never could. I could never give up medicine um, along the way, which I always thought I did. So I always went back to it. So it came two years ago, I decided, you know what, why can't I do both? And that's, that's what I'm going to do. So mm. We had a, um, uh, a nurse at the Alfred one, at one time who was a policewoman and a nurse. Oh. But concurrently. She, yeah, concurrently. <laughs> But she had a very different view about privacy laws as a nurse. (laughs) We had a lot of trouble persuading her that you can't do all the things that coppers love to do, if they could, on privacy. So there can be conflicts, but I don't think there is with medicine and law, but there are different boundaries, aren't there? Yeah, well, there are. It's interesting because, I mean, as a medical negligence uh, lawyer, I've only been able to work in defence because I felt I was sort of betraying my own kind in a sense but at the same time I acknowledge that um, on the plaintiff's side you know it's all about helping you know injured people which is obviously what I like to do as a Mm. doctor Mm. so yeah that is a really interesting issue mm. because see I'm not anti you know I hear what you're saying when you say you feel as a medical professional you should be on the defence side but the prosecution side has led to a whole lot of huge advances in medicine through uncovering medical mistakes and medical negligence and sharpening up the practices of um, health clinicians. So, you know, I'm all for medical negligence law, personally, because I think it improves the quality of our care. It's really the same project, isn't it? Just improving patient outcomes. What do you think, um, Lex, having worked in the Uh, as a lawyer in the public hospital The only problem I find is that um, medical negligence law, it's all covered by insurance and therefore, the practitioner really—I mean, okay—they say the practitioners learn a valuable lesson from these experiences, but they don't learn a financial lesson. They, they, you know, there's no—not a lot of. I mean, some of them even when they get sacked can get salary maintenance cover in insurance, so they can actually sue for wrongful dismissal with on, uh, as an insured. So the insurer pays the wrongful dismissal claims. Now, you know, insurance can go too far, but on the other hand, um, I think the principle of... The reason we've got safety and quality in health, I think one of the reasons is lurking behind a failure to be safe is the risk of litigation. Yeah, I I agree, and I think it's certainly in an ideal world that's where the um, law of medical negligence should be leading us, you know, to improvement and improvement in patient safety. However... Having worked in claims um, myself, I, I, I do have come to a view over the years that um, a lot of claims are made just simply because there is a prospect of, of gaining financially from it, not only for, for the patient, the plaintiff, but also for the plaintiff law firm. Um, and a lot of the money 
does just go to the plaintiff law firm. Um, so I guess over the years I've become a little bit cynical and a little bit jaded about the system in itself, which is why I'm, I've I started doing this PhD, looking at how we can make things better um, overall. And oh, so tell us about that. You, you've just launched into a PhD. What's your topic? It's oh, I've, I've yet to refine it because I'm right at the beginning of it, but it's essentially looking at concepts of risks, a risk in medical negligence um, across di- the disciplines of medicine, law and insurance. Having worked in all three areas, I think all three areas actually perceive risks quite differently and the way you perceive risk obviously impacts on the way you manage risk and um, overall you know if the overall goal is to improve patient safety and the, the well-being of our society how can we best do that without undermining it at the same time which I sort of felt that our medical negligence system can sometimes do um, in this in the way it, it can demoralize a doctor for instance who's involved in a claim even though the claim might be against a hospital, um, you know, I've seen to make them more risk averse. Do you think in practice? It, I th- it certainly. S- like I mean, t- so it paralyses their decision making because they're it, worried about. Yes, I have definitely seen that. Um, I see it all the time yep. in mental health. I see people who, you know, and we all know them. You know, so all the clinicians know who they are, and, you know, and in any, in a lot of places, you know, people will say, oh, don't go to such and such with that sort of issue. They're so risk averse. They'll yes. keep the patient in hospital far too long. They never discharge. They use the Mental Health Act far too much because they're, you know, normally because something's happened to them in the past. They've been yes. sued over something, and now they've got a distorted view of what risk is. Absolutely. And often it's mm. totally misinformed. Like Absolutely. they believe, you know, they believe all sorts of strange rumours about what you have to do in order to discharge a patient and in order to prescribe this medication or do this operation or consent the patient. And it, it is really problematic. Uh, um, I, I agree. So it can send I, people right down the wrong path. Yeah, and I, I think I think what it can do, the fear of, of legal action can also undermine a, a doctor's common sense. And, and I feel that it, it's actually gone to another extreme. I feel that um, a lot of doctors just have this fear of anything legal. So if they receive a document, say, uh, a, a, a subpoena for medical records or, or a, a, an insurance claim form for the patient that they have to sign, even though it's not to do with you know to with them not to do with them at all, they just panic and say, "What, what should I do? You know, what notes should I write? What, what should I put in this report?" Because they just they're just scared. Do you think they understand the duty of care and the and and at what level you're regarded as being negligent? I mean, a lot of them think that every mistake is negligent. So, yeah. and I used to say to me, if the conjoined twins in Singapore were separated and both of them died. And no one sued anyone. It was a really bad outcome. Yeah. But no one was negligent. It was a tragedy that they couldn't be medically mm. separated. And why would you try and find someone to blame? But every time something goes wrong, they think they're going to be sued, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Because in our society, that's what sort of I, that, I think that's what they've been led to believe. Because in our society, there are there is a cross section of patients who will sue for for an adverse event, which you know couldn't be avoided. Because there is always a what if, but you know maybe um, in most cases. Um, so yeah, I think um, as as Dr. Doolittle's been saying, I think the the concept of risk has been a bit distorted across all industries, really. But not by the courts. It's really by the way. I think what your study's leading to, I guess, is the way it's perceived by those in practice. That's right, exactly, yeah. Well, one of the commonest things I always hear is outrageous legal um, 
results. So people say, did you hear about the case in America where all the doctor did was shake the patient's hand and they got sued for a trillion dollars and now the doctor's a beggar on the street. You, know, you hear these outrageous <laughs> cases and every... They're not normally that bad, but you hear all these cases and every time I hear them, I say... Let's look it up. And whenever you look it up, it was never the case. The media misreports the cases. Then um, Chinese whispers, it gets exaggerated amongst the medical community. Whenever you look it up, you go, oh, actually, that was pretty fair. Oh, I see. The doctor recommended the ro- wrote the wrong script for the wrong patient and they got, a- oh, okay, that was fair. They should have, you know. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't see these outrageous cases. Do you guys as lawyers see cases where you go, that's outrageous? Um, yeah, I mean, as a, as a medical negligence lawyer and claims handler, when you get a claim, I mean, the thing is you can kind of see it both sides most of the time, but often you do think, oh, come on, you know, this is just, this is just life, you know. No, but do, you, do the courts uh, make outrageously bad decisions, oh, courts, or are you saying, because um, I get that the claims will sometimes be stupid, but the courts normally get it right, is my gut Well, in those cases, when you say you can't be serious, they wouldn't get through the courts, would they? Uh, mm-hmm. No, but the, well, it's hard to say because a lot of them don't even get that far because as insurers, you just want to get rid of it, so you just pay it out sometimes just uh, to get rid uh, of it, right, you know, right. um, depending depending on the on the level of risk because nothing's 100% in law or in medicine, as we know, so if we say, okay, this claim is completely defence, well, it's very rare that, you, you know, you'd be confident in 100 uh, defending a claim. But the, the other issue on this is, I know we're running out of time, but the other issue is that... Um, no, we know fee lawyers have a conflict of interest on these weak cases because they know that if that weak case proceeds, they're going to have to pay the cost if they lose. The, the client won't have to pay. Yeah. So there is an issue there about weak cases. They want to settle a weak case because they know if the weak case loses, they're in trouble. So you'll, you always know a uh, no, we know fee lawyer will be ready to settle. And that's a danger for defendants, isn't it? It is, You yeah. should push them to the limit and force them to go to court You'd like for the weak case. Yeah, that's the thing you'd like to, but it's just so expensive to go to court. Um, and um, I guess there's always that fear that what happens if the jury likes the plaintiff too much to, <laughs> to, to give, a, you know, a, a, a verdict against them. So, Hey, you know, one of the hot issues at the moment is social media. And, yes. you know, doctors starting to engage, hospitals starting to engage, patients starting to write comments about doctors and hospitals. So all hospitals now have a social media account. What are your thoughts? Risky? Legal problems? What are the, what are the issues? Yeah, social media is, is difficult because it's so difficult, uh, probably impossible to control, really. And a lot of um, medical practitioners and practices use social media these days to promote their, their services um, <coughs> with the medical board advertising guidelines um, in mind, hopefully. Um, are there medical board guidelines? I, sh- I shouldn't ask that because it suggests I didn't know it. Um, oh, there's that. I know advertising guidelines. Advertising and guidelines. And do they apply to social media? If you're advertising a service on social media, then it will apply. But what about yeah. if you're just engaging, like saying, hey, everyone, we're good. You know, yeah, I suppose it is advertising, isn't Another it? Another yeah. day at the office. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the hospitals put out stuff every day. You know, like I, I follow a number of hospitals and they'll say stuff like, you know, congratulations to, you know, we've just done our 200th transplant or, you know, congratulations to this research yeah. team or congrats, you know, our ED just looked after 400 people with thunderstorm asthma, that sort of stuff. Is that advertising or is it just... Um, social promotion. Look, I, what think, is it? I think something like that would be, you know, you're, you're stating a fact. Um, also, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not I'm sure if the advertising guidelines apply to hospitals. Cause if they it's a public hospital to too, do they, does mm. advertising apply in the same way? Probably not, because they're not making money. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's no profit. They're just they're advertising not. services. Surely, if yeah. anything, they want fewer patients. The right? real issue is like the plastic surgeon who 
will, uh, a classic example, yeah. where they will blatantly advertise that they can improve your physical appearance or whatever yeah, by coming along to them and they're the best yours. in the business. Huh? I said within limits, they couldn't improve yours. Well, that's why it's false advertising. <laughs> yeah, if they, if they said they can improve yours. The reason they can't improve yours, of course, is because you're p- perfect already. Oh, that's come back. <laughs> Hey, um, just, hey, yeah, I got Melanie here already. She's really good defamation lawyer, you know. <laughs> hey, Melanie, I'm going to cut you short because we've, we've, we've got other stuff to come to. You're going to stick around after the break and we can talk more and we're going to talk about the Greens' new drug policy as well. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. And we're back on air, so everyone stop chatting in the back. We're just having such a ball in here, everyone. I'm really sorry. I hope you're having a ball at home. You know, it is going to be a beautiful day out there, so you should be having a bit of a ball. Hey, um, can I just do a quick... No, let's go straight into the greens. Trader Wheels, you've been doing exams. Yes. But in between your exams, no doubt because you get sick of study, you've been reading the paper. I do I do like to read the paper when I can, yes. And there was something in the paper last week you might have seen. The Australian Greens have updated their policy on recreational drugs in favour of harm minimisation. Uh, so they're hoping to reopen the conversation about drug decriminalisation. At this stage, I don't think they've actually said that they're for drug decriminalisation, but they're definitely putting the groundwork down. Um, But they are... It is what they're calling a new approach to drug policy, and I think Doolittle quite likes this topic, and we have two lawyers in the room, so this is pretty much ideal. It is true. We do love this topic. I mean, because it's it's probably one of the hottest... You know, really, it's one of the hottest health issues for, I don't know, 100 years. You know, what do you do with drugs like alcohol, marijuana, everything else? Do you prohibit them? Do you have a um, health-based policy where you treat people who have got a problem uh, medically? Or do you use legal approaches such as trying to reduce trafficking and all that sort of stuff and putting users and traffickers in jail? You know, and what's the right balance? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we have... Some conflicting evidence, I guess. We know that prohibition doesn't work. For example, Australia has a pretty no, um, you know, zero tolerance policy to recreational drugs, but we've got one of the highest. This is according to the Greens, Greens website. Yeah, because um, you know what I mean. You know, because I've never quite believed that. You know, I I, I believe um, one of the key drivers of drug use is availability. The more available mm. it is, the more likely people are to use it. Mm. And whilst prohibition is not the only answer, and certainly criminal use. I don't think anyone in the world wants to get rid of attempts to limit access. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But full prohibition, I suppose we could say, has failed, certainly for drugs like, say, marijuana. Full prohibition's failed? They're not the biggest danger in society either, are they? Well, I that's mean, the other No, problem. that's right, exactly. The legal drugs are the worst. Alcohol and yes. tobacco are way more risky. And interestingly, the Greens have included those as part of their drugs policy. They're including them in their harm minimisation Approach. Well, let's let you finish before we question. Okay, sure. Yeah. So they're they're saying that they're committed to harm minimisation and that they want to. We, they think that we should be treating drug use as a health problem rather than a criminal issue, um, and they cite almost ad nauseum Portugal, um, which is a real success case. They. Uh, a few years ago, I can't remember. 15, I think Was it 15? Okay. They started treating it as a health issue rather than a criminal one, and since then they've seen drug use decrease um they've had less they've they've seen a reduction in drug use crime degree disease and overdose um and the way it works there is if you're caught taking drugs rather than being sent to court you're issued with a treatment order a panel then sees the person and recommends a course of treatment and access to treatment is guaranteed for the very next day and it also addresses other related concerns such as securing housing and employment because obviously it's all part of the same issue. 
Has Mr. Duarte been to Portugal lately? I don't know, as far as I'm aware. Mm. Richard Di Natale has, and I think that's where he got a lot of inspiration from. And of course, he is. Oh, of course. Yes. Mm. Um, Let's not bring the Philippines to Senator Di Natale, of course, is a doctor, or used to be before he was Mm. a politician, and he worked in drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is one of his passion projects. Do you know whether in Portugal they still have efforts to limit supply? Like they try and, you know, if you're a trafficker or you're caught bringing yeah, into the country... Yeah, a criminal to be yeah, a trafficker. I think, I think it is still. I Do think you know? it is. I'm actually not sure in Portugal, yeah. but I think the Greens here want to make sure definitely keep trafficking yeah, illegal. Yeah, everyone wants to still so fight trafficking. So why aren't tobacconists... Um, Illegal. Yeah, that's a really good point. In I agree. I, I don't know. I or think you shops. would argue, though. I, I guess it's taxed. I think so you would high. argue the reason that it's not is be, it's historical, yeah. um, and so and the acute effects of alcohol of cigarettes aren't nearly as bad as the acute that's effects true. of yeah, these other drugs. Term. It turns it see because we smoked as a community for I don't know how many years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years yes. before we realised that it caused the majority of cancers and the majority of cardiovascular disease, and that it was an absolute da- disaster. And interestingly, we then of course, took an educational approach. And for example, in Australia, I think we've decreased our smoking rates by about 50%. That's, I think we've exactly gone down right. from about... And I think Australia is seen as a world leader in reducing tobacco yeah, consumption without plain packaging and our taxation. Yeah. Yeah, and we exactly. treat it in a whole lot of ways. Medically, we offer quick yes. programs. Yes. Um, and then, of course, we treat it with a whole lot of regulations as well. For yes. example, anti-advertising regulations, um, taxing, we treat it through taxing. So the taxes on cigarettes are about 90% of the cost. You buy a packet of cigarettes in um, some kind and it's two dollars mm. over here it's 25 dollars mm. so you know we have all these approaches to cigarettes yet the problem with illicit drugs is we largely you know our the balance of our approaches is heavily swayed towards criminality so exactly. putting people in jail which just makes them worse so what drugs are they the green saying we should limit it to i mean we're we saying yes to marijuana and no to cocaine or kind yes to them of. and no to heroin kind what of are, yes they're keeping it pretty vague um they've said that they As I said, I don't think they've explicitly stated that they want to decriminalise, but previously their policy had a blanket opposition to decriminalisation and they've removed that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of opening the conversation a little bit. Um, But they have... But Richard Dinatale did say that they're not interested in decriminalising drugs like ice and heroin. So we can assume he means probably cannabis and some of the less harmful You know the other catch cry I saw through a lot of the stuff about it is... Um, everyone's, and you hear this a lot in the last five, ten years, asking for an evidence-based yes. drug policy, yes. policy. The principle being that so much of our drug policy has been based on politics and pandering to certain community and groups. And it's just and, not working. And being tough on drugs and the all war this on nonsense. Drugs, yeah. Whereas um, the approach now being to let's look at the actual evidence, the, the scientific and other evidence from the law... <clears throat> from the regulations, from the benefits of taxing, right through to the health evidence, and let's try and get a balanced approach. That's, that's right. That's and that, I think that's, it? it's really difficult because there's, it's socially it's such a contentious issue. As you can imagine, the response has been mixed and the news court, news court papers have obviously all said it's the loony greens with more crazy policies. Um, and and you, I, I read a couple of their articles because I thought, look, maybe they've got some interesting points about it, but they were just so loaded it was pretty... I, I could barely even read the article saying another crazy policy from the Greens. It's interesting. When you talk to people in the criminal justice system, like Rob Starry, for example, um, they uh, Rob's been banging on about this for years because he sees the people who are prosecuted who don't get any health care at all in prisons. So the, the money is spent on incarcerating them, not in fixing the health problem. And, of course, then they're in contact with hardcore criminals, which is potentially going to worsen exactly. their problems. So... And, and, just, yeah. and, I don't know what you do with them. And uh, not only the lawyers, though, too. You know, I read... I, I'm trying to remember when it was, but um, 
Pennington, what's his first name? Professor David. Penning, David Pennington, who ex-dean of medicine on every senior committee in the country. He ran some sort of Australia-wide drug review mm. years ago. Mm. It would have been at least five years ago. He wrote a long editorial in the Medical Journal of Australia saying exactly the same thing. Now, it was at least five, if not ten years ago. So the medical community's been behind this move for a long time, in my opinion, certainly in Australia. But it hasn't got... Of course, it never got through John Howard. Remember, he even wiped out, I think, the heroin... Um, you know, the, those rooms where you could do yeah, safe injecting, injecting you know, things like that. You know, these policies that, you know, I've been hearing about in medicine since certainly the early 90s, yet, yet politics has been so slow. And that's the other sad thing too. Back to the media again, according to Doolittle at least, the medical profession are behind this kind of thing, right? Evidence-based, that's very much Mostly, in line nearly with every what doctors report are interested I in. And, is and, the right, and the right wing of politics in Australia would be behind that too. Absolutely. But then in the paper, they're saying that the AMA, the president of the AMA, slammed the Greens' new policy. But then when you look at what he actually said, he was pretty ambivalent about it, really. He said that he was wary of any push towards decriminalising, but he also said that he welcomed a health-based approach rather than a criminal approach. That doesn't sound like slamming it at all to me. That sounds like, yeah, I mean... And they're not mutually exclusive. Exactly. You can have a legal approach and a medical approach. Just wondering, Dr Melanie Tan, who does work in ED, what what is your impression of the drug problem, you know, from an ED perspective? Is it a revolving door? What's it like? Yeah, well, my impression, it is is certainly um, a big issue for ED departments dealing with drug-affected patients. And um, because I'm a locum, I don't work regularly in one particular department. It's difficult for me to say how much of a revolving door it is, but certainly my my impression is um, that these patients can be very difficult to engage and difficult to to help going forward. And once you discharge them, you, you, you can have some kind of plan for them, ask them to go and see their GP or something, you know. It's pretty, it's, but it's we've got difficult. some good drug services, but they are a bit hard to get into. Exactly. There's lots of waiting lists and stuff. We need way more. We absolutely do, yeah, because these patients um, need, you know, ha- you know, help. So I guess my question to um, training wheels <laughs> is uh, what is the actual plan that the Greens have in mind? Yeah, it's a good question. So on their website, they say that the current punitive approach has failed to stop illicit drug use. And as Doolittle said, we should be seeking an evidence-based approach instead. Um, they're, they, they're claiming that current drug, the current drug approach doesn't keep people safe and it can actually put people in danger. And that's something they mentioned, which I thought was interesting, was that people put themselves in dangerous situations to avoid getting caught with illegal drugs. So they might consume all their drugs at once or fail to seek medical help when they need it because they're worried about the criminal consequences. So what the Greens are hoping to do is establish a a national regulatory authority to investigate the best ways to reduce drug-related harm. And that'll be cross-party. So, you know, people... uh, right-wing shock jocks and, and co. Can't say it's the loony greens, you know, wanting everyone to get high. Um, it'll be a, a, a non-partisan project to look at, at the evidence and the best way to... That's, I think, which, which I think is the most interesting part, really, is they're not actually saying this is what we think should happen. They're saying let's put a committee together and talk about it rather than just making it a war on drugs and keeping it a criminal offence, which obviously isn't working. Let's try to find a new solution. It's, it's, it's going to need money, isn't it? I'm sure. If you, yes. if you move away from punishment and go to healthcare, mm. where are the clinics and where, where are the Well, drug in Portugal, doctors? they've found that the money saved, because they're not treating it as a criminal offence anymore, they can redirect funds into healthcare. And I think the Greens are hoping for a similar kind of redirection of funds. Here so less people in jail. 
Yes. I think the thing that people don't realise too is we're way behind on these things. You know, mm. the United States that most people, you know, currently associate, as we were joking earlier, with Trump and extreme conservatism, you know, they've got marijuana, for example, legalised in about Heaps 25, 30 states. states. Absolutely. They've got uh, decriminalised, I should say. They've mm. got it actually legalised in two, I think maybe three now, where you can buy it like cigarettes, mm. heavily regulated, but anyone can go in and buy it. You don't even thing, need a medical right? If it's heavily regulated, then it's not going to be laced with God knows what crap yeah, and you're going to know how much you're taking. There's so many spin-off benefits. Of Absolutely. course, there's some risks as well because mm. there'll be more supply and so more people will try it. Therefore, more people might get addicted. But those who do get addicted will get a health-related approach. Exactly. Lots of other countries across Europe are doing the same things. And, um, you know, I just feel, you know, we are just... The, the fact that we are in 2016 only proposing <clears throat> having a committee to look at it is just... It's pretty it, ludicrous. It's ludicrous it? when other countries the, did this 20 years ago. It's part of the policy vacuum in Australia. I mean, we're... Policy is driven by people like Mark Texter and lobby groups, not by politicians. I mean, we ha- couldn't we have a prime ministerial statement on the harm caused by drug abuse and a plan to overcome it? And it's if we did have that, it would be so heavily politicised. Everyone, you know, mm. it'd just be it'd turn into a nonsense like it has so many times. But We've in got reality, the the public support this sort of stuff. Eighty two as a survey again on the Greens website, so we've yep. got to take that with a grain of salt. But in twenty thirteen, a survey that they conducted found eighty two percent of young Australians supported, for example, pill test pill testing at festivals. Um, and I think I, I don't know the figure off the top of my head, but I think the majority of Australians support, for example, the decriminalisation of cannabis. Well, you know, pill testing. I remember that was one of the first topics I spoke about on this show going mm. back about 12 years ago when you know you could anywhere in the Netherlands and a lot of those countries mm. you could take the pill you bought whilst you're at a festival they shave off a tiny amount they tell you what's in it whether you've been robbed or not whether it's dangerous or not and we've resisted doing this in Australia. I just what? cannot see why. There's no argument. It's Absolutely. just it's crazy. Hey we're going to have to finish this topic because it is only one minute and a half until the amazing scientists from Einstein and Gogo take over the airways and add evidence to every topic that they discuss. Hey, um, Dr Melanie Tan, lawyer and doctor extraordinaire. I can't believe you studied two courses like that. Um, my head's still spinning. Thanks so much for coming in. And thank you for having me. And enjoy the rest of this sunny day, even though it sounds like you're going to be on a plane and going to the city of churches. Which is apparently even sunnier today. Oh, is it? <laughs> Someone was telling me just this week how fantastic Adelaide is and I should get there and stop being critical just because it's full of churches. Um, I'm going to go and have a look at Adelaide one day. If there's anyone from Adelaide listening, invite me. <laughs> Train wheels. Thanks. Good luck with your exam results. What are you anticipating? Oh, First class honours across the board? Absolutely not. That's what I'm anticipating. That's what I've been telling everyone. We've well, got your training faith wheels. in me, Doolittle, is really very kind. <laughs> it's justified. And Lex Judicata, Australia's leading lawyer. Oh, <coughs> you don't you know the laws don't about so uh, hard training misleading and deceptive conduct? <laughs> Thank you for coming in, because I know you've had a very busy day. You've had family illness going on and stuff, so it is much appreciated. Oh, I really appreciate you paying my hourly rate to bring me in here. <laughs> well, when your hourly rate's only $1.50, um, you know, even I can come at that. Grab a coffee. Hey, uh, we're going to hand you over to the scientists from Einstein and GoGo. You've been listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. It's Sunday morning. It's a sunny day. Go out and enjoy it, but with your earphones in so you can listen to every bit of gold. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.